Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 1130 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, kings and queens, angels and saints, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. It is that time again. It's the second Wednesday of the month. We need to talk about health and wellness and all things medical, and we are glad to have cardiologist Dr. Taiwan Tillman on to help us break this stuff down. Good morning. How are you doing, sir? Good morning. I'm doing great. How are you today, G? I am doing quite well. Always glad to have you on with us um, and just need somebody to kind of uh, cut a little bit through some of the the gibberish and explain in plain, simple terms what stuff means. So thank you so much for doing that for us today. So Yes, ma'am. So where do you want to get started? I know there were a couple of things. Um, I was thinking well, because I know we, we probably need to take a longer time on one particular topic, but you go ahead. I'm going to let you take the lead. Well, I think the couple of things that we talked about was heat-related illnesses and mm-hmm. also Alzheimer's. And I think the bigger chunk of the time will probably be spent on heat-related illnesses. But Alzheimer's is also interesting because there's a new drug that I think everybody's seen in the news. So, But I think um, we should start with uh, the heat-related illnesses. Oh, okay. All right. We can do that. Because I was going to put that for the next half hour since we're going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But either way, I'll let you do every. Okay. So let's just start with the Alzheimer's because there is one other thing I want to touch on too. But let's start with the Alzheimer's. Okay. Um, Because I. And also, one of the things I would like for you to do, if possible, before we really get into it, is can you explain a little bit what. Alzheimer's is and who who is more maybe prone to it, why some people are more susceptible, and the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia. Okay. So, well, let's start off. Um, Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. So there are several different types of dementia, but Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia. And um, the question of, well, number one, what is what is Alzheimer's? What is dementia? It's basically a decline in cognitive function, and typically it occurs with increasing age. So there's normal in, decrease in cognition as you get older, and that happens in all of us. You know, you forget where you place your keys, you forget minor things. But Alzheimer's tends to be much more significant where you start to lose cognition, where you don't recognize people um, places that you've been going your whole life, you don't know how to get there, you get lost getting there. Um, you're unable to do things like dress yourself, um, take your medication, just routine things. 
that you should be able to do, you're unable to do just because of a, a rapid and progressive decline in cognition. So that's basically what dementia is. Alzheimer's is dementia, but it's a certain type of dementia. It occurs most often in people over the age of 65 and is the most common cause of, other than just age-related dementia, the most common cause of significant um, dementia is Alzheimer's by far. Um, it can occur in younger folks, um, which is called an early-onset type of dementia, and that is almost always genetic and can be detected by genetic testing. Um, a lot of research has been done on Alzheimer's over the years, and a lot is known about Alzheimer's. There was, for a long while, nobody really had an idea or handle on what the underlying um, pathophysiology was that caused Alzheimer's. But um, quite some time ago, um, it was found that there are proteins that deposit in the brain, um, specifically one called a tau protein and another called an amyloid protein, beta amyloid to be specific. And those the those proteins deposit in the tissue of the brain and basically strangle out the neurons. And the neurons are the functional cells of the brain that help you remember things, that help you perform activities, and basically that's what makes the brain work. Those neurons working together as a as a single unit to basically make the brain function. Well, when you have Alzheimer's, those proteins deposit, they basically strangle out those little neurons and they start to die. And so you start to lose neurons, which then correlates with loss of cognitive function that's progressive over time. And that's the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's. Um, there is currently probably about six to seven million patients in the United States that have Alzheimer's disease. And most of those, once again, are older folks. And it's a big drain on our economy because it's a you know, those, a lot of those patients, once it gets to be advanced, they need full-time care around the clock, which can be very expensive. Most of the time, families can't afford it. Most of the time, families don't have the manpower to take care of those patients. So it, you know, tends to be a dilemma in a lot of families that have patient, that have uh, family members with advanced dementia. And the reason that Alzheimer's is in the news as of recent is because there has been a new drug approved and that new drug, um, it's interesting because, number one, there hasn't been a drug that's been approved for Alzheimer's for decades. And number two, because it is a new type of medication, a new class of medication that actually attacks the pathophysiology that we just talked about, the formation or the dep deposition of the, the protein plaque within the brain. It actually attacks that. Any questions about what I've said so far? I have questions, but we're going to we're going to continue, and then I'm going to go back. So okay, okay. So let's talk about the new drug because it, it is really interesting. Um, the new drug right. is called Lakimbi, and the new drug um, it targets the plaque that I was talking about. So I said there were two different proteins. There's a tau protein, and then there is a beta amyloid protein. The majority of the protein that gets deposited that starts to damage the neurons is the beta amyloid protein. And this medication targets that. And this is, this is important because the, the type of medication is a monoclonal antibody medication. And it's important because it's a medication, it's a technique or a medication that's starting to be used in lots of different illnesses. And it's important because of the way it works. And it's actually quite interesting. So let me explain it really quickly. So okay. what a monoclonal antibody does I'm going to use cancer as an example because a lot of the new cancer medications are monoclonal antibodies. A lot of the medications for rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases are also monoclonal antibodies. You've probably seen commercials on TV for Humira and a lot of these other medications. Um, 
a lot of those injection-type medications are monoclonal antibodies. And so what they do is you inject the monoclonal antibody, and that, that medication is designed to attack a certain protein. And so say there is a cancer cell that has a certain protein, the monoclonal antibody goes in, it attaches that protein on the cancer cell. The antibody then alerts the body's immune system to then attack that cancer cell. And so the immune system comes, detects the antibody, attacks the cancer cell that it's attached to, and destroys the cancer cell. Same thing for these, the beta amyloid protein in the brain. It attaches to the beta amyloid protein, it alerts the body's immune system, and the body's immune system then comes and starts to eliminate the protein that's destroying the neurons in the brain. And that's how it works. That's how it works to basically decrease progression of amyloid, uh, decrease pro progression of Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's disease, and even sometimes slow down any of the symptoms, or if it's detected early enough, maybe prevent the onset of Alzheimer's in the future, or at least clinically symptomatic Alzheimer's. Okay. Any questions about that? <laughs> like I said, I got a ton of questions, but I'm going to let you go as far as you want to go, and then um, I'm going to jump in with my questions. So go okay, ahead. So, cause um, I just want to make sure that you understand the way that works. So it gets kind of technical, but it's really important because it has so many applications, and you will start to hear that more and more as time goes by as they start to make new medications that work mm -hmm. by the same method because it's basically using the body's own immune system to eliminate you know, all these different ailments, whether it's cancer, whether it's autoimmune disorders, whether it's things like Alzheimer's, any of a number of different things. And as time goes by, there will be new applications to the same type of technology, vaccines and so forth. So it's a very important, um, a very important technology that will become very commonplace. But part of the problem with it now is that it's, it's extremely expensive. So, for example, Lakimbi is anywhere from twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a month. And um, the good news is a lot of these medications aren't daily medications. For example, this new one is an injection twice a month. And so it's not like you have to take a pill every day or you have to get an injection every day. It's just twice a month. And the injection is usually done in a doctor's office. But, you know, at that price, $26,000 a month, $26,000 a year. Um, but okay. at that price, you know, you're looking at, you're looking at, you're looking at almost $2,000 an injection um, for those medications. So it, it, you know, it gets to be, it gets to be expensive, but Medicare, I know they're covering this one. And, uh, as these medications become more common, though, they will become much less expensive and they'll become much more routine, but now they're, you know, there's not a lot of medications like this and they're all, you know, quite expensive. But they work, and that's the important thing is that they work. There's more research being done, and the more common they mm -hmm. become, the more commonplace they become, the cheaper they will become and more affordable and available to, you know, routine patients. The one thing about um, Lakimbi is, uh, like I said, there are about 6.5 million people that have Alzheimer's disease, and it's only approved for patients that either have very early symptoms of Alzheimer's or or almost pre-Alzheimer's. So patients that have advanced disease, they're not going to benefit from it. They're not approved for it. But the patients that are earlier on or that have uh, pre-Alzheimer's, they are definitely candidates for it. So that's probably, of those 6.5 million people that have Alzheimer's in the U.S., probably about 20% of them would benefit from the Kimby. Okay. So that really does 
I'm going to start in it because that really does pose an issue um, for me, especially um, having um, both on my maternal side, my my mother and grandmother that um, had some sort of bout with uh, mental illness. Um, my mm-hmm. grandmother was in uh, a, a mental hospital that Florida had uh, years ago um, mm-hmm. up in uh, Chattahoochee. Um, in North Florida, and then my mother, you know, she had other health issues for many years, like high blood pressure, heart disease, or whatever. But then, um, and I have a question too that that I'm leading up to. After my father died, it just seemed that uh, she started to develop the the Alzheimer's and the dementia. And so, and one of my questions is. Can trauma trigger things like Alzheimer's and dementia? So that sort of goes to what are the underlying causes of Alzheimer's. And one of the things that you mentioned is um, in some cases there is a genetic predisposition where, you know, Alzheimer's just runs in families. And, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was going to ask about that there question are, in a minute too. Yes, <laughs> so go there ahead. There are there, <laughs> there are there's gene testing that can be done to detect whether or not you have some of these um, genetic or predispositions to developing Alzheimer's either at you know a later age or even early onset dementia. Um, and so in those so, cases where, where there's so a strong family history, up, you can be tested for it. Okay, so since you're bringing it up, that to me, opens up another can of worms because I think that almost leads to the reason why some people don't want to talk about mental illness because, mm-hmm. for example, there's a part of me that says, oh, maybe I should go get tested. I mean, I, I actually did made that request of my doctor um, last year with regards to my heart because my mom had a heart heart attack, hurt, went, so at the first one that we know of at age 61. So when I turned 61, mm-hmm. I said, let me go because I have this. I have heart disease um, and other related type of illnesses in my maternal side. Let me go and get checked. Fortunately, mm-hmm. I'm fine, although I have hypo, excuse me, hyper, which I actually think not, now I have hypo, but I have hyperthyroidism, which – does if you know not diagnosed or treated could tax your heart because it causes palpitations. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. with having that, I and in the history, I went and got tested. So um, mm-hmm. for the most part, I'm fine. Now, people seem to be more accepting of physical illnesses, and I guess you could say though because they're more tangible and they can understand them, and that they are, I guess, more visible then yes. I would say mental illnesses. And I think people may be scared to go and get tested for being predisposed to mental illness because they feel like they may be judged. And I guess one of the things I want to ask you too with regards to um, Alzheimer's and dementia is how much of it is a mental health issue and how much of it is physical? When it comes to when you mean specifically as it when it as it relates to Alzheimer's, yes. So it's largely largely um, a physical ailment with identifiable 
pathophysiological underpinnings. Um, so when someone has Alzheimer's, if you obviously can't do a pathology of their brain while they're alive, but if you do pathology of their brain once they've passed, then you can identify the beta amyloid placking and the tau protein placking that's been deposited in the brain and the lack of neurons and so forth um, that was the physical manifestation of the um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, now, when someone has Alzheimer's, they do start to develop what you may see or one may perceive as mental illness. Their personality changes. Um, they may have mood swings. They may be angry. They may be any of a number of things that you may perceive as mental illness, but that's all a complex of the Alzheimer's itself. And so Alzheimer's isn't a type of mental illness. It's a type of, it's cognitive decline. But like I said, it may present or seem to be outwardly that the patient may have some type of mental illness. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, you said your grandmother was in a mental institution, you know, at that time, where would you put an Alzheimer's patient that needed round the clock care that had significant dementia and cognitive issues? Um, probably in, the mental, in a mental facility. And so it doesn't mean necessarily that she had mental problems. It may very well have been just Alzheimer's and uh, the cognitive, cognitive decline and emotional um, manifestations that come along with that. And, um, you know, it, it's, 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 a difficult, it's a difficult problem for a number of reasons, but that's one of the other things. You know, you have some patients that have Alzheimer's dementia and they're pleasant and they're difficult. I mean, they're easy to manage and they just, you know, they may not recognize you, may not know where they are, may not be able to take care of themselves, but they're easy to manage. And you have other Alzheimer's patients that have really bad mood swings, anger problems, and things like that that make them much more difficult to deal with. And, and um, you know, it's not that they're mentally ill. It's just a manifestation of their Alzheimer's. And when you, you know, you're trying to figure out whether this is more environmental or whether this is more genetic, it's a little bit of both. You know, like, mm -hmm. for example, smoking, and you mentioned high blood pressure earlier, and and, uh, you know, lack of um, exercise and a lot of different things do increase the likelihood that you may develop, um, that you may develop Alzheimer's. But then there's uh, the strongest thing underlying is genetics. Um, the actor, this is recently in the news, probably within the past six months, Chris Hemsworth, the actor that plays mm -hmm. Thor, um, mm -hmm. he was genetically tested and he found out he had two copies of the gene that causes very uh, that causes um, sometimes early onset Alzheimer's, and mm -hmm. uh, he got a copy from both of his parents, and so he is at very high risk of developing Alzheimer's not just at a late stage but at an early stage. And uh, I don't, you know, at the time when it, when he first announced it, they said he was taking a break from acting and didn't know what he was going to do. But you know, that's something you were missing. Some people may or may not want to get tested. You know, do you want to know that? You ask a bunch of people, half people will say, yes, I would want to know. And a lot of people say they would not want to know. But he decided to get tested and he, you know, found out that he is at very high risk for early onset dementia from Alzheimer's. Well, you as a patient may want to know, but the, this is the concern that I have is that, you know, with people – especially people that really just don't have good intentions, uh, being able to access your information these days. Um, yes. You know, you worry about people getting hold of you, something that you may want to keep confidential 
you just yes. may want to know for your own sake, so you know how to manage your affairs as you go forward. Someone may use it against you and say, well, oh, I found out, you know, you have, I mean, they they won't necessarily say it to your face or whatever, but they may say, I don't know if I necessarily want to hire this person or have this person in my inner circle or what whatever the case may be, because um, I've come to find out that they have a particular issue. And Correct. I don't know if I want and to you, deal with that. Right. And you certainly don't want your insurance company finding out information like that because, you know, there's an increased risk, but you may never develop it. But trust me, their thought would be that they're going to have to pay for that down the road. <laughs> so you'll be, you would be difficult to insure. And you were talking about um, your employer. Say your employer finds out that you have may develop an early onset terminal illness. You know, do mm-hmm. they want to employ you? You know, might they treat you differently? Mm-hmm. Might they find reasons to get you out sooner? You know, there's right. a lot of And you may be fully capable things. and even more so than someone else of handling a particular job. But because right. uh, this um, information is out there, it may it could be held against you. And then, you know, I mean, how do you defend yourself? Because then, you know, if they haven't told you they have the information, but they're using it against you and you try to say – and you think they might have the information, it's a hard thing to prove in order to, to state your case that they're discriminating right. against you because they have uh, your medical information and this particular portion of your medical information is cause for them to – you know, they feel is cause for them to – to uh, fire you or uh, or even demote you or, you know, not promote you or whatever, you know, yeah. the decision might be. So, And that's why we have HIPAA laws to protect um, health information. But as you know, people find out things all the time that should not have been released to the public about other folks. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, medical information is getting hacked. We, we know this. Yes. It's, you know. Financial information gets hacked. Medical information gets hacked. Um, you know, so it's it's not necessarily a matter of whether you know the medical profession is is trying to do the right thing or not. It's just a matter of you know having the the people out there with um, ill intentions that um, mm-hmm. say, oh, "I feel like doing this today." <laughs> you know, let's <laughs> let's um, mess with some people and put this information out there. You know, for no reason. Everybody's everybody's information is stored electronically now, and yeah. if you have, can hack financial accounts, you can definitely hack medical information. Mm-hmm. And, and unfortunately, it's almost a forced thing. I mean, I I've seen it where they say, well, you know, you, if you want your uh, update of your lab results, or, or you know, you want an update of um, what you owe on your account, or when your next appointment is. Uh, you need to go on to this particular website. It is, I mean, mm-hmm. I know it um, streams, oh, streamlines the process. Yeah, it streamlines the process for the profession, but for the person, it's a it's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's it was mandated several years ago that by a certain date that physicians' offices, particularly if they were above a certain size, had to transition to electronic medical records. And, oh you know, all the insurance companies wanted you to do all your billing through electronic medical records. And it was, you know, it's been nationwide and it's been, yeah, it's been forced. And, you know, a lot of physicians went kicking and screaming because sometimes those electronic medical records, particularly for smaller offices, were very, very expensive. 
but it's an expense they eventually had to pony up to. The government helped with some mm-hmm. of the costs, but you know, in the end, it was either you do this or else. And so the whole system is going electronic, which you know, efficiency-wise, it's great. Accessing records, it's great. But for mm-hmm. privacy, that's the other side of the coin. Has mm-hmm. some negatives. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've blown through the break, and we've also gotten off subject. So let's get back to um, <laughs> uh, let's get back to the, the the medical because that that is good news. Um, we we want it. We and that's why we're talking about it. This is you know a major breakthrough. Um, it is. And, but it, and it's interesting though that it's kind of like you were talking about. Um, uh, you know, medicines having multiple purposes. Uh, that seems to be uh, becoming more of the norm these days that you develop a medicine for one thing and then it seems to, um, you know, cover something else. We're finding that Mm -hmm. a lot with the diet medication. So um, you have to be very careful with it. I personally, you know, I'm glad to see this happen, but I personally would like to see something for the patients that um, are further along in their um, illness because right. in a lot of cases, people who are afraid to come forward or they aren't showing the symptoms right away, uh, by the time this, they, they come forward or show the symptoms, they may not qualify for this medication. Right. But here's the beauty of it. The beauty of it is now that people know that there is something that they, that can be done because before, you know, you could come forward with early symptoms of early Alzheimer's, or you could be diagnosed with genetic predisposition for early Alzheimer's. But what could you do? There was nothing you could do. It was just sit and wait for your cognitive decline to to fall, right? And but now that you know that there's something that can be done, if publicize that and educate the public, much like what we're doing right now so that people know that there is an option for treatment, there is an option to prevent progression, then people may step forward and start to say, you know, I know that I'm having these issues and can I be tested? Or my family members had Alzheimer's. I had three, you know, first-degree relatives with Alzheimer's, um, and they will discuss that with their doctor, and the doctor can start to monitor them closely or do genetic testing if need be. And so I think it opens a whole new paradigm, not only of treatment, but also of a way of monitoring and uh, monitoring progression of disease for these patients because that's something that we're now going to have to develop. You know, these patients can be treated. How do you detect them earlier? How do you detect which patients may be at risk? And at what point do you start to treat them? So it creates a whole new way of, of looking at Alzheimer's and diagnosing Alzheimer's and treating Alzheimer's because, you know, you have a whole new um, treatment option on the table that was never there before. So, I mean, if you are in the process of being treated, do you go to your doctor and say, hey, I just heard about this medicine. Uh, what about that? You know, do you, yeah. is, is, or do you wait for your doctor to approach you? How do you do that? No. Well, your doctor probably has, you know, I don't know, five. And uh, if they're, if you have a neurologist, say if you have a neurologist that's managing you for Alzheimer's disease, as you come through your routine appointments, they will probably assess every patient to determine whether or not they are a candidate for a new therapy that's available, such as this. And if they are, they would do their best to try and get them started on it. Um, 
if you don't have a specialist like that, it's just your primary care doctor where they aren't focusing particularly on that one problem, it may not happen so smoothly. Um, another thing, if you're in an office that's very keen into using their electronic medical records, they could punch in a few buttons, pull up every patient that has Alzheimer's, sort them for which medications they're on, sort them for how severe their Alzheimer's is, and pull up a list of patients that would be candidates. So that's one of the beauties of electronic medical records. But um, most offices aren't going to be that adept at using their EMR. But if they are, that's one thing that mm. they could easily do to determine which patients may benefit. That's something that, you know, a big, um, something that the VA could, could do. They could, because uh, they have, they've had medical records for a long time, and they could sort their patients that way and determine which of their patients may benefit from a medication like this. Wow. Well, we'll just keep an eye out. And, but, you know, like I said, you know, in in the case of, because I, I to mention something I just would not, on my worst enemy, seriously, is, yeah. you know, um, and, and to witness it up close and personal is just awful. But um, yet yeah, just to have that breakthrough right now is, you know, reassuring because that means that maybe um, some of the focus in terms of treatment may, you know, become more pro- progressive and, and change. And maybe right. it will, you know, it, will, it won't be such a challenge to, to uh, treat uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. So. And there's one other thing We're, I would add. This medication mm-hmm. is 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 um, right now approved for the early dementia patients, like I mentioned. But right. it's possible that they may test later a more progressive disease, and it may get approved later for other patients. But the for initial initial approval is just for the patients that I mentioned. But keep your fingers crossed for more. Okay, we shall, we shall. And we are going to take a quick break. We are here with Dr. Taiwan Tillman uh, we were talking about Alzheimer's. But now we're going to change the focus a little bit because, ladies and gentlemen, you do not have to go to hell to be burning up. It is just hot out there. So we're going to talk a little bit about how to, you know, keep yourself safe from the heat when we come back. If you have questions or comments, the number is Five one six three eight seven one nine four four G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. We'll be right back. Over the past sixty years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. We let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you, caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar, or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast. Let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. Are you hot? Are you, I mean, 
that's you know <laughs> you're in air condition if you're outside i'm so sorry uh hopefully you are drinking water or doing what it takes we are here with dr taiwan taiwan tell me it's wellness wednesday here on g's power hour questions or comments the number is 516-387-1944 dr tillman what is happening and what can we do i mean we're having to kind of almost change lifestyles a little bit it is. And I mean, there's no doubt the world is getting hotter and you can debate why all you want. But the fact of the matter is the world is getting hotter. And I think, you know, most people compare that anecdotally just by looking out their window and telling you what they feel on a daily basis. So it's definitely getting hotter. And along with that increase in temperature comes increase in risk for heat related illnesses, which is a major problem. And most people, when you think about weather-related deaths, people think hurricanes and, you know, tornadoes and, you know, those types of things. But actually, the biggest number of weather-related deaths on an annual basis in the United States is due to heat-related injuries and not hurricanes or any of the things that we normally think about when we think about weather disasters. And Mm -hmm. so that tells you how big of a problem it is. And you're in Florida. I'm in Texas. And it's been no let up, right? It's been rough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, yeah. And, so you, and you can tell by the electric bill, too, probably, if you have air conditioning. <laughs> exactly. Or, 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 exactly. or a fan. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now, just clarify for me or confirm or whatever, my understanding is that by the time you are thirsty, you are already <clears throat> dehydrated. Is that correct? Yes. And so when you're when you're out in the heat, well, the important thing about about heat related illnesses is prevention first and foremost. And like you said, by the time you're excessively thirsty, you've already gotten behind the eight ball, so to speak. So you know the important things that you need to do when you're out in the heat and being exposed to environmental stressors, heat stressors, is number one, most important to stay hydrated. Mm-hmm. Number two, minimize your exposure as much as you can. And that mm-hmm. means, you know, if you're having to work out in the, in the heat, just short shifts as you can, shade as much as you can. Um, number three, try to have airflow. If there is no airflow, try and dress in light clothing, um, loose clothing, light colors that can allow you to sweat and to get some airflow to your skin. And so those are all preventative measures, you know, that you need to take. I mean, first and foremost, don't be out in excessive heat unless you have to. So if you have work to do outside, try and do it early in the morning, late in the evening so you're not exposed directly to the sun. Um, if you have a job, um, some people work in factories that are enclosed where it may be hot inside, you know, maybe, you know, something like a bakery or it may be, you know, any of a number of places where you're working inside where the machines are generating heat and you're having to wear protective clothing and overalls and, you know, helmets and so forth. You know, in those places, you have to definitely stay well hydrated. Most of those places are mm-hmm. regulated, so they have a certain amount of time that you can be exposed to heat before you have to get in and out and so forth. So um, the preventative measures are the most important thing when it comes to treating or avoiding heat-related illnesses. And once mm-hmm. you get down the path where you're starting to get symptoms from the heat-related illness or a heat exposure, you know, that's the time where you have to be educated to recognize what those mm-hmm. symptoms are and how to respond to those symptoms depending on how far along the uh, continuum of the heat-related illnesses you are from mild symptoms to more severe symptoms that may need to, 
may need to be addressed by a 911 call. The one thing I would say, um, and I, I started doing this for different reasons, but uh, one of the things I would say is keep a small cooler in your car with, you know, it you know, doesn't have to be large bottles of water, but even small mm-hmm. bottles of water. Uh, and and one, one of the reasons that I'm saying this, I found out, like, this is uh, several years back, um, my husband and I ended up going to a conference in Phoenix. And oh. the location where we stayed, they had water stations in between where the rooms were and where the conference center was. Now, it, it, in all honesty, it's the conference probably should not have been there for a lot of senior citizens because just walking out there and then getting to the water station was bad enough, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, but didn't try to make all make it all the way to the conference center from the hotel room. Um, it just wasn't a good, good thing. But my father had a friend that lived out there. He met with us and he talked about how he kept, at least six gallons of water in his trunk. And, you know, so, you know, we talk about lightening our load and stuff like that, but the reason he was Mm -hmm. doing it is just in case his car broke down, you know, or he got stuck in traffic. And he was looking at it in terms of more of his car. But also, too, when you're stuck in heat like that, you have to think about uh, keeping yourself hydrated as well. Yeah, Um, yeah. And so uh, I, st- I, in recent years, just started carrying it because we have a lot of people on the corners that are, are begging and stuff like that. And I kept thinking about in this Florida heat, um, you know, they might need just some – I don't want to see anybody fall out. So I would mm-hmm. carry – I started carrying this little cooler with these little small bottles of water. You don't want to get anybody on a street corner, a large bottle of water. But anyway, um, along with whatever donation I made, I've started to realize I need to keep that in my car for me because even though I'm in air conditioning, it does not take much to actually start to feel a little thirsty driving around out there in that heat because the air conditioning doesn't necessarily cover everything. You're still getting some sort of heat in the car, you know, sun's still coming in and even with the tenant windows and stuff like that. And then if you're in and out of your car, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, uh, you know, another strain on your body as well. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, and hydration is extremely important because when it comes to heat related illnesses, I mean, what is it exactly? Basically, what that means is your body is at a point where it's having trouble regulating its temperature due to heat exposure. And mm-hmm. when that starts to happen, your body's main way of regulating its temperature is sweating. And when you sweat, sweat evaporates and the evaporation cools your body. Just like if you were to rub alcohol in your skin, when the alcohol evaporates, it cools your skin. It's called evaporative cooling. It's the same way an air conditioner works in a simplistic mm-hmm. fashion your body's main way of cooling itself is by sweating and your body has a large large surface area of skin and that's the way it manages the core temperature Um, when you think about heat illnesses who's at risk for it well everybody little kids little kids have a large uh, body surface area to body mass ratio so they're at increased risk of heat injury and heat illness Um, older folks because of medications and very often other medical problems, they're at increased risk. And then everybody in between, the teenagers that are outside doing sports in the heat, and then the young adults and 
adult people that are working, they have jobs that work outside or they're doing yard work. So everybody is at risk for a number of different reasons. On the extreme end of the spectrum, the very young, the infants and the very old, they're at the highest risk. So most of the time when you hear about heat-related deaths, it's older folks where they may not have had air conditioning or their air conditioning broke and they're at home alone. They die. Mm-hmm. Young kids left in the car for even shorter periods mm-hmm. of time. You hear about that every year. And so yeah. those are the ones that are at highest risk. And uh, I think the important thing is, like we mentioned, you know, doing things that prevent the exposure. And for older people, a lot of times it has to be something in the community where if they don't have air conditioning or air conditioning breaks, they have somewhere where they can go for these people, particularly during times like now where we're having these heat waves. So it may be mm-hmm. something set up by the community. It may be a library, maybe a shopping mall, but somewhere for these people to go to get out of the heat if they have problems with, uh, you know, cooling their homes. Right. They have opened up in various libraries and um, community centers around here cooling stations, uh, actually, right. where they've actually designated them as cooling stations. However, if you can't necessarily find a cooling station, I mean, take a minute and go and sit down in a mall or something, a shopping center, you know, somewhere mm-hmm. where you can just step in, inside for a few minutes. You know, if they have a water fountain, that's fine. You find a lot of places now are actually uh, giving out, uh, you know, water. Uh, so you could just the, your big box stores like uh, Sam's or Costco or whatever, some of them you don't necessarily have to have membership to, to browse. You have to have membership to buy. Um, I, don't, I don't know if they change that up again because they keep changing it back and forth. But uh, a Walmart, but just somewhere where you can step inside for a minute to get cool and maybe uh, grab a, a – they have those coolers out in the front by the registers where you can, you know, purchase a, a drink really quick right. just to, uh, you know, alleviate some of the stress on your body that way. But, um, you know, and then if you, you, you know, if you're in a state like Florida or California or Texas or Arizona um, or even in some of the northern states because they get hot because they have all that concrete. I keep saying, I keep, they, I keep they preaching. Do. Please don't tell, please don't turn Florida into a concrete jungle. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> like so stressed about that. I can't tell you, but you know, you learn if you, you know, go outside in the morning, or if you have to go in the evening, put your mosquito repellent on and go, you know, at dusk or or eat in the evening. But preferably, if you have to do any running around, go in the morning and then just get inside for the middle of the day or the remainder of the day. Um, right, and that's one thing you mentioned. You had been in Phoenix. One thing, if you spent time in Phoenix and some of the places that get really hot like that, everybody during the daytime they do as little as possible. They mm-hmm. make their schedules around avoiding the heat, the midday heat in the summer, because it's just so unbearable. Mm-hmm. And uh, you go to the malls, you know, you go to the mall in midday in Phoenix in the middle of the summer, they're not very crowded. You go at night in the evening when it starts to cool off, <laughs> that's when things are crowded. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, yeah they, because because they've had extreme heat for so long, they've sort of, you know, built their schedules around it. And that's as it, the whole country starts to heat up, you know, things may start to change. But I know, like, for the past few weeks during the daytime, I'm just trying not to do very much outside in the daytime as far as even going around and shopping and so forth just because it's so unbearably hot. 
Mm-hmm. And then also, too, I mean, I know you all love Disney and SeaWorld and Universal and Legoland and all that kind of stuff. You got to get, I know and people are like, oh, I'm on vacation. I don't want to get up early in the morning. If you don't want to die out in that theme park, you need to get up in the morning get out and, and be there when they open and go early and then, I mean, and get a day pass so you can take a break and go take back a, to your hotel room. Take a break room in the middle of the day and nap. go back. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's, and then go later. I am, I am telling you, you know, as a Floridian and, and as, as once upon a time, probably a regular tour guide for anybody that wanted to come and go to Disney, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, or you, you got to manage it. Uh, you know, you, you can't just, you know, we, we tend to do things on impulse. Um, we've got to get away from that. You've got to plan it, you know, and the experience will be a lot more enjoyable for you, you know, instead of you talking about how hot and unbearable it was, you know, you can talk about how much fun you had. And don't, right. and I know it's also difficult to come when um, it's like when school's in. Okay. Yeah. You know, you come during the summer. Uh, that's not necessarily the best time to come, though, folks. Best time to come is, you know, early spring, you know, uh, late fall. That's probably going to be your best time to come. So if you can plan it around those times, you'll enjoy it a lot more and and you'll be safer and healthier for it. So Exactly. So we should discuss um, sort of what the types of heat-related illness are. So, you know, most people when you say – you know, somebody had a heat illness. People automatically think, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Everybody thinks heat yeah. stroke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's actually like the most extreme. So there are several stages that you will go through before you get the heat stroke that people may not recognize. So those are certainly some things that we should talk about so that we can maybe have educate people so that they don't get all the way to the point where they actually have a heat stroke, which can be life-threatening. So okay. there are basically three different classes of heat-related illnesses, number one being probably what most people have experienced is heat cramps. And so you're out in the heat, you're exercising, you're doing yard work, you're playing a sport, and all of a sudden you start to get cramps in your legs. You see it on TV. You see it, you know, especially in states like Florida and Texas and in the southeast, kids playing football at the beginning of the season when it's still hot, they haven't been out there playing that much. All of a sudden, first game, all these kids are going down with cramps. Later in the season, doesn't happen. It's because they've gotten preconditioned and it's cooled down a little bit. But heat cramps, very common. And so heat cramps is one of the first things that you'll see. Whenever you have um, these kids that typically almost always football because it's hot, they're wearing pads mm-hmm. and helmets and their body can't cool itself efficiently, the kids that, um, that die at practice, it's because mm-hmm. they ignore the first warnings. First warning is almost always heat cramps, and that's caused by your body sweating, being depleted of fluids, being dehydrated, and some electrolyte imbalances. You fix that with hydration and rest and cooling. So number one, get them off the field, get them, or get them out of the heat, get them in some shade, and start hydrating. The best thing to hydrate with is water. Obviously, a lot of people like Gatorade and, you know, hydration drinks. That's fine. But water is best. So get them cooled down, get them out of the heat, 
and then hydration. <clears throat> and that's all you need to do for heat cramps because that's the very first stage and uh, you're not at significant risk of any organ damage or anything else, but you have to act. And once you got them cooled down, you got everything better, that's it. They don't go back out, whether it's sports, whether it's work, whether it's you in your yard. Once you get cooled down, go in, take it easy, go at it another day. That's the, that's the first type and the mildest type of heat illness. The second type is called heat exhaustion. So at this point, you start to notice some different things. At this point, your body starts sweating excessively. Um, you start to notice symptoms like lightheadedness, dizziness, headache, maybe even nausea. Your heart rate may be rapid, um, and you just don't feel well. You just start to feel a little weak. You just feel unwell. Most of the time with heat cramps, you have the leg cramps and it hurts, but you don't have a general sensation or feeling of being unwell. Well, when you start to get heat exhaustion, you do. You start to feel unwell like you just can't do it anymore. And same thing, hydration, get out of the heat, and you need to be more aggressive as far as cooling. So that may mean um, wet cloth on the head, wet cloth on the arms, under the arms, on the torso to cool the body. And so you start, at that point, you start making more aggressive measures to try and cool the body, not just hydration and avoidance of heat. And then last, if you avoid, if you ignore heat cramps, and you progress into heat exhaustion, you ignore heat exhaustion because you really want to get out on this yard finished. <clears throat> or, you know, you're at work and they're saying, you know what, everybody's going to be off in 30 minutes, so we're going to keep at it until we get done and, you know, 5 p.m., and you get to the point where your body can no longer cool itself. So your body has exhausted its ability to cool itself. Your body can no longer sweat. You've gotten dehydrated. There's no more sweat to be made. And all of a sudden, your body's regulating mechanism has been overwhelmed. So your body temperature starts to climb. It goes past the fever rate of 101, goes into 102, goes into 103. At this point, at 103 degrees, normal body functions stop working. Your brain starts to swell a little bit. Your kidneys don't work as well. None of the enzymes. Those say you're damaging your organs, right? Yes. And so this is the point where, you know, older people, younger people, anyone, when you get to heat stroke levels, if you get too far along the road, even if you get to the emergency room right away, you're starting to experience multi-organ failure. Your kidneys are shutting down. Your liver is failing. Your brain is swelling. Everything stops working. And when all the organs start to shut down at the same time, it's almost an irreversible situation. And so that's why once you get mm. past heat exhaustion, if you see somebody that gets really, really sweaty and they're in heat exhaustion and bam, they stop sweating, they reach the point where they're going into heat stroke. And at that point, it's 911 call. It's, yeah, you want to do those other things, but very first thing you do, 911 call, out of the heat, ice bath if possible. Get them into a tub and just fill it with ice. Get their body cooled down. Hydration. 911. And that's the most important thing at that point. Once the heat stroke is there, you have to get them to the emergency room because you're maybe dealing with organ damage that can't be reversed by cooling and so forth. And so the most important thing is that you recognize the early stages so you never reach the heat stroke stage. But the heat stroke stage is an emergency, it's life-threatening, 911 needs to be treated in the hospital. Okay, so I, I have a, a couple questions. One, it's kind of counterintuitive, but you kind of want to wear a covering, like a lightweight covering 
to prevent burning and um, to prevent the, the heat, you know, having, I guess, air circulating. So you wear maybe longer mm-hmm. sleeves and pants, right? Because, you, you know, my, my thing is it's summer. I'm wearing my T-shirt and shorts. Yeah, well, you want you want your clothing to be number one light colored because darker colors are going to um, heat up faster. So light mm-hmm. color will reflect some of the some of the heat and sun. Um, you want your clothing clothing to be loose fitting because there needs to be air circulation on the surface of the skin. So whether it's long sleeves or short sleeves or shorts, you need your clothing to be loose fitted so that the air can circulate on the surface of the skin because that's where the evaporation takes place and that's where the cooling takes place. And um, you can wear long sleeves, but if you do, you have to make sure that it's loose enough so that air can circulate. And okay. there is the heat, the heat exposure, and then there's a the sun exposure that can cause damage to your skin. And those are, those are two separate things. So damage to your skin doesn't matter whether it's hot or not. If there's sunlight, the UV radiation can cause the damage to your skin. So you don't necessarily have to have the heat to cause the damage to your skin. It just depends on, you know, the the angle of the sun and your the time of exposure to the UV radiation. And so those are two separate issues. But yes, long sleeves will certainly help protect um, from the skin, protect your skin from the UV radiation, and also. Um, will help mitigate some of the some of the radiant heating that your skin gets from the sun. Okay. And then now I have a question about things like um putting on well lotions and sunscreens and stuff. Like, you know, my mom always taught me, you know, once you get out of the shower, you protect your skin by putting on uh, lotion or moisturizer or something like that, which which mm-hmm. I've done almost all my life. But mm-hmm. Um, my understanding, though, too, is sometimes some of those items can clog your pores, and that, and won't mm-hmm. that make it harder to cool off? So, how do you strike that balance? What do you do? Well, sweat is obviously mostly water, and uh, what you want is to avoid anything that's not water-based. So, for example, most lotions are going to be water; they're going to be water-soluble. And if they're water-soluble, when you start to sweat, the sweat will dissolve the lotion and you'll sweat without a problem. So that doesn't cause a major issue with um, affecting your evaporative cooling. Now, take something like, um, <laughs> this is extreme, but Vaseline. Vaseline yep. is petroleum-based. It is not water-soluble. And so that will clog your pores. That will reduce your ability to sweat and it reduce, will reduce your ability your skin's ability to cool itself. And so that is the largest organ in your body, your skin is, and that is your major organ for cooling yourself. And if you that away, then you start to get some major problems with inability to cool yourself. Okay. So, yeah. So a, yeah. So so a water-based, what, not an oil-based uh, yes. moisturizer or skin protectant or whatever. Correct. Correct. Okay. And most of most right. of the ones that you're going to find are, are going to be water soluble. And yes, I know the old folks swear by the Vaseline, but no, y'all y'all don't don't need to do that. And and uh, you know, uh, so sorry. Uh, what other um, advice do you have for us um, while we're trying to deal with this heat right now? Other advice for dealing with the heat. I would say 
first and foremost, like we mentioned, we mentioned prevention, and it's about it's partly about planning your day, knowing what you have to do, and how you can minimize your heat exposure by doing that when you have to do that. That may be number one, adjusting your schedule of how you're going to approach that day. Number two, Mm -hmm. some of the things you've already mentioned, adjusting what you're going to wear. Number three, um, hydrating before you go out, not just waiting until later. Hydrate before you go out so that you're already well hydrated because, as I've mentioned several times, sweating is the way your body cools itself. If you're not hydrated, then you can't sweat as well. So your body needs to hydrate. It's sort of like if you have a car that has a radiator that doesn't have water in it, then your car is going to overheat. Your body's the same mm-hmm. way. You need to be hydrated so that your body can produce sweat so that you can cool yourself. And when you're out in the heat and you're producing sweat and you're depleting your water stores, your fluid, you need to replete. So that's why it's important to rehydrate and to hydrate while you're actually out in the heat doing whatever it is that you're going to be doing. And then lastly is education, education to the communities about these about the high risk of heat-related illnesses, educate them about the symptoms so that they can recognize heat-related illnesses and prevent themselves from getting to the point where they progress from progress to cramps and then to exhaustion and then the heat stroke by recognizing the symptoms early if they do find themselves in a situation where they are starting to get overheated. And those are the primary things when dealing with heat with heat injuries. And then of course, um, community efforts, like you mentioned earlier, where they have cooling stations and designated places for people to go that don't have the ability to be in air-conditioned homes and so forth, where they can go and get cooled off and reduce the risk of, you know, community catastrophes where you're having, you know, 10, 15 people die in a single day because of a heat wave. Mm. And, ladies, there's nothing... Uh, while we're going back to the old days and get yourself a nice, pretty good old-fashioned parasol while you're walking along out there. Uh, <laughs> Not a bad idea. I've, Not a bad idea. Nice wide brim. Yeah, a nice wide brim sun hat. You know, this is the time. You know, it's not just for style. This is it's for safety. It's for your your health, for your life. So, Doctor Tillman, thank you so much. How how do people reach out to you if they, if they have some questions or, or or need a good cardiologist? I'm pretty easy to find. Um, if you look up on Instagram, my name at Taiwan Tillman, easy to find there. Also on Twitter, the same, and pretty easy to find. All right, all right. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it um, because we we did need to have both of those discussions. Actually, they're they're very crucial right now, and um, we just want everybody to you know be knowledgeable and also you know stay safe and be well. So, thanks for breaking that down for us. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. And thank you all for listening. Uh, Friday we have uh, Tara Collingwood, the Diet Diva, on with us. So um, make sure you stay with us. And tomorrow might be doing a best of. I, I have another commitment, I think. Um, if not, who knows? But uh, just tune in. And, uh, you know, and if you have a show that you've missed, you know, don't hesitate to go to um, Blog Talk Radio uh, and look up – oh, goodness, I – NHISG Entertainment and Time G's Power Hour, and then you can find one of the shows that you may have missed. This has been G's Power Hour. I've never had it so good entertainment. Be well, be safe, be blessed, and please remember, all real power comes from God. Take care. <laughs>